Hello and welcome to the Together for the Common Good podcast channel. My name is Jenny Sinclair, and this is a podcast where we explore what the common good means in practice and how it can help us work towards civic and spiritual renewal. I'm the founder and director of the UK Christian charity Together for the Common Good. In this series, we're showcasing a set of nine lectures bringing alive what the common good means in terms of responsibility, political participation and civic life, human freedom, economy, the dignity of work, people and planet, and social peace. In this fifth episode, the fifth lecture in the series is given by Adrian Pabst, who is an acknowledged expert in Catholic social thought and political economy and one of the leading figures seeding a growing cross-party consensus for economic and civic renewal. Many Christians argue for economic reform, but few are able to conceptualise what reform aligned with Catholic social thought would actually consist of. But Adrian is one of the few who can do this, so I asked him to set this out in practical, accessible terms. He shows what a more just economy looks like, reflecting the dignity of the person, and when anchored in the dignity of work, and which reconciles the estranged interests of capital and labour, finance and production. His lecture is brilliantly clear. He's a professor of politics and is in a senior role at the National Institute of Economic and Social Research in Westminster, so he engages with the machinery of power at close quarters every day. I hope you enjoy what Adrian has to say in this lecture called Just Economy. How can the economy be reordered to work for the common good? Mark, thank you so much for your more than uh, generous words of uh, welcome and also huge thanks to Jenny for your friendship. And it's really uh, lovely to be here and a huge honour for me to uh, be part of this very distinguished uh, lecture series with people before and after me who I hugely admire from whom I've learned a, a great deal. Um, very, very grateful uh, indeed for everyone who's here this evening. Uh, uh, in person and also online, um, and really looking forward to, to your questions and our conversation later. Uh, I think it's very um, apposite that this is a series uh, hosted by uh, a cathedral, uh, uh, an amazing movement, and Together for the Common Good, and CCLA, uh, not least because I'll be saying something about tripartite uh, sort of settlements, and it seems to be already a wonderful uh, practical example of that. And, and the fact that we're here uh, you know, a place of, uh, you know, churches, charities and local authorities pretty much sums up what I think needs to happen more. You know, we need more of that and a little less of just a central state or a global free market that somehow uh, have become so so dominant, but not uh, particularly uh, in, in, in particularly good ways. So let me uh, start with a quote. And this is how it how it begins. The capitalist is invulnerable in his wealth. The working man without bread has no choice but either to agree or to hunger in his hungry hope. For this cause, freedom of contract has been the gospel of the employers, and they have resented hotly the intervention of peacemakers. They have claimed that no one can come between them and their man, but their relation to them is a private, almost a domestic affair. They forget that when thousands of women and children suffer, while they are refusing to grant a penny more in wages or an hour less in work, there is a wide field of misery caused by their refusal to negotiate in this strike. It is not a private affair. 
It is a public evil. Not Karl Marx or some far-left firebrand in the 21st century. No, <clears throat> those words were spoken by Cardinal Manning in 1889. The reference is, of course, to the great stock strike. Coming at a time of political turmoil, economic insecurity linked to low pay, growing popular backlash against the elites. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? Then as now, an unjust economy with low wages and inhumane working conditions led to all these strikes and indeed worker self-organization. Yet whereas we seem to be stuck in an economic cycle of boom and bust, as well as political paralysis, 1889 reminds us that it doesn't have to be this way. The peaceful resolution of the Dockers strike not only gave rise to the labor movement, which permanently changed British politics, it also inspired Catholic social thought, which, as I will argue in this lecture, is the most coherent body of ideas for social renewal. I think Catholic social thought is a gift to the world, a map of roads not yet taken towards a more just economy, one anchored in the dignity of the person and of work, and reconciling the estranged interests of capital and labor, as well as the estranged interests of finance and production. And all of this for the common good. The history of how the strike led to the emergence of Catholic social thought reminds us that, thanks to the mediation of Cardinal Manning and William Booth, the founder of the Salvation Army, a new alliance was forged for the common good of community and country. In London's East End, not very far from here, the Jewish community organized a solidarity march with the Dockers. And uh, you know, many of whom were Irish Catholics, so relations hadn't always been, shall we say, very cordial. And together with the Salvation Army, Jewish groups set up soup kitchens for the dockers and their families. So what we have is an alliance of Catholics, Protestants, and nonconformists, Christians and Jews, working class and middle class. There's much to learn, I think, for our age of polarization. The events of 1889 did have a vital influence on Pope Leo XIII, who was told by Cardinal Manning about the social reality of Britain after the Industrial Revolution and in the middle of the first wave of globalization at the end of the 19th century. And let's not forget a few decades before World War I. So some parallels with today, I think, are unmistakable. And it was the harrowing conditions of the working classes in poor communities up and down the country, reported by Cardinal Manning, that in large part led the Pope to write the first social encyclical Rerum Novarum of new things which focused on the dignity of working people and constructive alternatives to both laissez-faire capitalism and also collectivist state communism as it was beginning to take shape. Once again, we can see the importance of these ideas for today, when we are seemingly locked in a struggle between US-led market capitalism on one hand and Chinese state capitalism on the other hand, with potentially uh, unforeseeable consequences and a descent into some global conflagration if we're not very, very careful. But no doubt the differences between 1889 and 2023 far outweigh the similarities. And perhaps the greatest single difference is that our problems today are as big <clears throat> as our politics is small. The two main political parties here in the UK seem to be engaged in restoration rather than renewal. The Conservatives at the moment seem to be harking back to a Thatcherite world of deregulation and liberalization 
as a means ultimately to a small state, low tax economy in which apparently wealth will trickle down uh, from the city of London down every provincial gully. Meanwhile, the Labour Party is currently retreating to the Blairite and Brownite model of public sector investment to compensate for private market failure. Yet in ways that leaves the Thatcherite economic settlement of global finance and deindustrialization entirely in place. Neither party, I think, faces up to the reality that we have here in the UK one of the highest levels of socioeconomic inequality between and within regions, and one of the most centralized yet also ineffective governance systems. Currently, we are, with few exceptions, stuck in a low wage, low skill, low growth, low investment, and low productivity impasse. I think economists call it a low-level equilibrium trap. I think I prefer to call it a vicious circle. And with our political parties, at least for the moment, offering little energy and little purpose, I think a sense of anger and abandonment across the country is palpable. And yet, across the political and indeed the cultural spectrum, I think there's an extraordinary consensus that a new model is needed, but no consensus to what that new model should be. What I will suggest in this lecture is that Catholic social thought provides both the principles and practices on which a new model can and indeed should be built. It's really crucial here to realize that Catholic social thought is not another ideology, not something that can be reduced to a single set of values or interests, unlike the political ideologies of conservatism, socialism, and liberalism that are all in crisis in different ways. Catholic social thought is primarily concerned, is not primarily concerned with, say, a Christian defense of the market against the state, and nor can it be equated with social justice and a focus on poverty relief based on public welfare. Rather, Catholic social thought, and I think this is true for Christian social teaching more generally, is a holistic way of thinking and acting to bring about the common good of all, not just individual profit or aggregated utility, but rather personal fulfillment combined with mutual flourishing. It has deep roots in Christian anthropology, ethics, and indeed metaphysics. It is about the nature of the person as a relational being, embodied and embedded in relationships and institutions and pursuing mutual recognition in society based on contribution rather than domination over others or pursuing the accumulation of abstract wealth. And as human beings, if it's true that we are on a quest for a more purposeful life. I think we realize that actually at the heart of ourselves, there is what the late Jonathan Sachs, the former UK chief rabbi called the greater human we. That is to say that the collective, the we, the communal precedes the individual, but not in some kind of hierarchy, but rather in a covenantal sort of fusion of all the ties binding us together as human beings who are really social beings more than economic entities or administrative units. And this, of course, builds on a long legacy going back to biblical times, but also Greco-Roman philosophy, Aristotle's notion of the political being. But St. Thomas Aquinas makes the point that even more than political beings, we are social beings, animale sociale. And that is more fundamental than even our political uh, belonging. And this conception in no way denies the reality of vice and sin. 
of a fallen world in which we are all too often selfish, greedy, distrustful of others and prone to violence. Yet, is our sinfulness really more fundamental than our capacity to pursue the good? Does vice characterize us more than our capacity to be virtuous? Well, Catholic social thought believes that, well, it's important to recognize the reality of evil. With St. Augustine, evil is somehow secondary. It is the privation of good. The good is primary. And the good of God's creation is both primary and hasn't been entirely destroyed by the fall. In fact, it's been renewed again and again, and certainly by Christ's incarnation and resurrection, as indeed prefigured in the First Testament. So in Psalm 104, we read, you send forth your spirit, they are created, and you renew the face of the ground. And the good is real, and we can discern it. In 1 Timothy, we read, for every creature of God is good, and nothing is to be refused if it be received with thanksgiving. Gift, gratitude, these are the fundamental things that characterize us as human beings. And the same goes for society, and yes, for the economy as well. And Catholic social thought is so important because it reminds us again and again to resist the extremes, whether it's collectivization or commodification. It charts an alternative economics beyond just the pursuit of purely private profit or public utility towards something like the parole search for goods that are, you know, in common and that we, uh, and that are open to all. So the common good, something that we, I think, all here think is important, is what? Well, it combines a sense of individual fulfillment of our talents and our vocations, but also mutual flourishing, that I cannot be fulfilled in any way unless you are too, and vice versa. It doesn't impose a single conception of goodness on absolutely all, and nor does it represent just the greatest good of the greatest number in some quasi-utilitarian manner. No. What it is is this, and I think Pope Benedict XVI put it very well in Caritas and Veritata, the social encyclical published in the middle of the financial crisis, when he wrote that the common good is, and I, and I quote, the good of all of us, made up of individuals and intermediary groups, who together constitute society. It is a good that is sought not for its own sake, but for the people who belong to the social community and who can only really and effectively pursue their good within it. End of quote. That is the common good. Therefore, it is not the total mathematical measurable good. It's not the sum total of individual utilitarian happiness in some artificial aggregate, like, for instance, GDP. I'm not going to rubbish GDP altogether. It tells us something. But clearly, what it does is it counts goods and services one by one. It doesn't tell us anything about the relational goods that are, in fact, necessary to produce goods and services and necessary to sustain us as human beings. It certainly does not account for real relationality. The common good is just that. It's the truest good that we share together as human beings and members of society. That would be things like work, family, community, but also tangible things, or indeed sometimes more intangible, like health, education, housing, welfare. These are not individual goods that we just consume. These are, in fact, things that we produce, we create together. And likewise, against extremes of egotism and abstract altruism, Catholic social thought charts an alternative ethics too, one that focuses very clearly on human virtue. 
Now, to speak of virtue does not mean a pious new demand for more morality in public life. It is somehow, you know, we need to keep on injecting a bit of ethics to make things a little nicer than they are. No, not at all. In fact, there can be no human practice, private or public, individual or social, unless it's always already shared and communal. And unless we're aiming for the good, the good that's internal to whatever it is we're involved in. And some idea of how we can recognize and successfully pursue that internal good. As St. Paul says in the letter to the Romans, and we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. So for Catholic social thought, morality is not a kind of optional extra that we add on to the political economic process. Instead, virtue ethics is in continuity with all human activities, and that includes finance and business. It is not external to it at all. Pope Francis in Evangelii Gaudium put it very succinctly. He writes this, and I quote, ethics, a non-ideological ethics would make it possible to bring about balance in the marketplace and a more humane social order. And here it's also important to recognize that Catholic social thought always balances rights with obligations. So yes, the preferential option for the poor is a very important part of Catholic social thought. But so is the value of work, and in fact, the more fundamental value of contribution. So reciprocal obligations mean that the wealthy have a duty. They have a duty to help, to respect, and to support the poor. But it is also an ethical imperative that essentially tries to attain the common good for all. That means we uphold the dignity of the person by emphasizing that everyone can make a contribution to society. However poor, however ill or infirm, contribution is true for all of us. So financial help for the poor, as Pope Francis says in Laudato Si, and I quote, must always be a provisional solution in the face of pressing needs. The broader objective, he writes, should always be to allow the poor a dignified life through work. End of quote. This is why entrepreneurship is so vital. Again, to quote Pope Francis, business is a noble vocation directed to producing wealth and improving our world. It can be a fruitful source of prosperity for the areas in which it operates, especially if it sees the creation of jobs as an essential part of its service to the common good, end of quote. So in short, Catholic social thought is pro-worker and pro-business, both at once. That may come across as a paradox, but only if we accept secular assumptions. This is not a paradox if you think of it in Christian terms. So in short, Catholic social thought is founded upon Principles we all know well, subsidiarity, solidarity, dignity, participation, and the common good. Subsidiarity is what? Devolution of power to the lowest appropriate level in line with the dignity of the human person. And sometimes that can be the national or the international level. You know, for the environment, for financial regulation, you can't do that locally. In fact, you want to work together across borders. But for other things, yes, you do want to decide at lower levels than perhaps the international or the national. Solidarities with those who cannot help themselves, at least for now, but we want to also enable them to help themselves once more and to make that contribution that they're called to make. The dignity of all humans, 
is central to Catholic social thought, of course, but also the dignity of labor and the dignity of what Pope Francis calls the common home of nature. Participation in the economy, the polity and society should always be the thing we should promote based on our agency and on human creativity. And finally, the pursuit of the common good is so vital because that is actually what makes us more truly human. So in the remainder of the lecture, I want to try and illustrate how those principles can help us transform our current economic model towards a more just economy. The first area is going to be how we might possibly reconcile capital and labor. I think our prevailing politics has for some time treated capital and labor somehow opposed to each other and involved in some zero-sum game where there have to be apparently winners and losers. Notions of mutual interest and mutual benefit are almost entirely absent from both ideology and public policy, all of which perpetuates a cycle of conflict as we can see with industrial action again and again and again. And of course, what's really true with industrial action is that everyone's a loser. And very, very few people stand to gain anything at all. But even more fundamental is the pattern of labor share in the national economy declining for the past 25 years, but not somehow to the benefit of higher growth in aggregate terms. According to calculations by the International Labor Organization, productivity growth has been both low, but also has outstripped wage growth by the biggest margin since 1999. Here in the UK, we've seen 15 years of stagnant wage growth between the financial crash and COVID, and now the sharpest fall in living standards since the 1950s. The National Institute where I work, we found that people are on average about 8% worse off than before COVID. But for certain income groups, it's far worse than that. If you're in the lowest income decile, the lowest 10% or the lowest quintile, the lowest 20%, you would have to have something like four or 5,000 pounds more than you now do in disposable income to be at the same level as in 2019, 2020. That is a huge drop. And much of that is to do with stagnant wages. Of course, then exacerbated by inflation, exacerbated by uh, the uh, economic low growth that we've had. This is really what's underpinning the cost of living crisis. Not just a temporary spike in prices, though that is very real, but the fundamentals of the economy are not delivering for millions and millions of people. So to raise wages in line with productivity, what we need to bring together are the interests of both capital and labor in some negotiated settlement. One core aspect of that would be a renewed partnership between government, business, trade unions, and local communities. Whether nationally or regionally, we need to broker negotiations so that we can actually start identifying that mutual interest and that mutual benefit. Collective bargaining is not the worst place where there are organized labor unions and unionized sectors and where everyone around the table can be thought of as responsible. We should certainly have more collective bargaining, not less. Not because it's a panacea, but because it's a good start in bringing people around the table rather than having the strikes that are so costly to all. And this is something that works already in Germany, Scandinavian countries, the Netherlands, and elsewhere. So why not learn from it? And that means creating more tripartite bargaining so that we can give government the right role 
as an honest broker, as a force for the common good, opening up spaces in which capital and labor can again be brought together. Because it's illusory to expect individual workers to be able to negotiate wages or working conditions in large businesses entirely on their own. But it's equally illusory and dangerous to think that state control or ownership of the means of production right, by the central state, uh, that that will somehow em empower employees and lead to a better outcome. Neither works. What we need is the tripartite alliance, something that was foreshadowed by 1889. Because what we need in the end is a balance of interests between capital, labor, and government. And I think that extends to some strategic investment decisions as well, where it's better to have people on board rather than to see them as somehow as opponents or enemies. And then there's the area of corporate governance. Because another arrangement that would help bring about better business, economic and social outcomes would be to have a clear social purpose for each business, but to do it in a way that is negotiated with the workforce. Co-determination is one such way. Again, it works well in some continental European countries such as Germany or the Netherlands. Worker representatives on company boards can help shape some of the key strategic decisions and improve trust and cooperation within the workforce in the long interests of all of the stakeholders. This isn't just true for the continent. We've had good examples here in our history. John Lewis, in trouble now, but still a valuable example of employee co-ownership. But let's not forget all of the mutuals, the mutual banks, insurance companies that we used to have that were an important part of the institutional ecology. I think they only, in the end, were wiped out because we changed the incentive structure. We can come back to that in the discussion. Well, I don't think what was really done is no one proved that these models were not capable of generating value over time. They did. But when we changed incentive structures, I'm afraid we ended up destroying something very, very precious. I would also go as far as saying that we should consider some form of wage boards in service sectors that have low levels of unionization, uh, especially when it comes to uh, smaller employers and some of the people who are paid the lowest wages. Because wage boards could be done very locally or regionally or even nationally. And representatives can be chosen by workers through elections or enterprise work councils. That can be a more effective way to represent the labor interest than the old-fashioned side-based collective bargaining where the unions simply don't exist or also where union bosses can be true obstacles in a negotiated settlement. In relation to business corporate governance reform, I think should begin with workers on remuneration committees and on company boards, but also extend to some form of participation of other stakeholders. Is it not conceivable that we have some participation in at least discussions around aims and objectives from people who represent customers, from people who represent suppliers, and also local communities where businesses operate? Now, to make this more specific, one policy we should consider which would enable workers to have some say in the running of companies is to introduce a legal requirement 
of something like a minimum amount of shares held by employees. Right? That could be 10% or 20. It wouldn't be a blocking stake ever, but it would try and diversify both ownership and with ownership, as we know, comes not just rights, but crucially obligations. And that is, I think, what we need to emphasize here. More generally, co-participation in governing businesses won't just improve mutual understanding and thereby reduce the potential for conflict and strike. I think we'll also create a greater sense of common purpose. And is that something both democracy and a functioning economy need? Because if we are serious that businesses aren't just economic units, but social organizations, and I'd be surprised that there's anyone who would disagree with that, then that demand that corporate bodies exercise some form of social responsibility must be met in all justice by recognition that businesses and individuals as workers deserve some form of participation and representation. And I think some form of, let's call it corporatism for a moment, is not completely displaced. Not state corporatism, which led us to terrible uh, outcomes in the 20s and 30s. Not market corporatism, which in the end is just a form of uh, empowering uh, executives and institutional shareholders, but a kind of non-state, non-market corporatism, a civic corporatism one where the different stakeholders negotiate around the same table. And that could be done very locally, but even internationally, where businesses operate in different countries. We have some organizations that could support some of this. The International Labour Organization is one. But crucially, trade unions, businesses that often operate internationally should be involved. And we could even think of governments and the civil service in taking the lead here as well with their international partners. Let me move on to uh, welfare. Our politics, I would submit to you, I don't think understands poverty or the poor, how to help them very well. For too many on the right of the political spectrum, the poor are either necessary sacrifices to the win-lose logic of the free market, or else, in the most extreme cases, a bunch of lazy, lazy misfits who need to be disciplined through state coercion. For many people on the status left, welfare is the only way to help these passive victims of capitalist exploitation. It can only be saved by the state because clearly the state knows best. But in reality, I think we know that this is not at all true. The poor, like all human beings, are subject to the vagaries of moral fortune. That means circumstance, inheritance of talent and wealth or poverty, in addition to the exercise of effort and virtue. But anyone who is unfortunate, including through their own fault, perhaps, remains a part of society. They remain our neighbors. So the poor are us. And let's not forget, we are also the poor. Ultimately, material wealth is not the thing that distinguishes us. So if they are part of our society and our neighbors. They deserve our support to meet their needs, but also to develop their ability to help themselves. So rather than thinking of welfare as some form of entitlement handed out or merely handed down to compensate for failure, true compassion in the Christian sense means that welfare is hand up because the poor can legitimately be expected to make what contribution to the community they can. 
because to ask for this contribution is to respect their continued dignity as human beings. So therefore, we need to think of it in terms of participation and contribution, both at the heart of Catholic social thought. So how then would we perhaps transform the welfare state? And let's not forget that our economy at the moment is low-wage, high-welfare. And again, it seems difficult to justify that in the long term because we're essentially saying that work is not paying enough to feed ourselves and our families. And that can't be a good state of affairs. I think transforming the welfare state in line with Catholic social thought and participation and contribution would mean moving away from a centralized bureaucracy that ends up often outsourcing public services to private providers and to move towards a mutualized system with a much greater element of contribution. So at the moment, our system seems broken, top-down, target-driven, based on payments by results with efficiency and value for money. Meaning what? Imposing a managerial bureaucracy of Byzantine complexity that makes Whitehall simultaneously over-centralized and weak at the core. It's wasting money, it's wasting people, resources, their talents and their vocations. It's reducing citizens to administrative units, while public sector workers are often debased and just impersonal cogs in a machine. It services an utterly impersonal system where apparently all we do is pursue some form of key performance indicator. We're testing, we're assessing, we're auditing, and we unleash a tidal wave of forms, questionnaires, surveys, and reports. Means testing is extremely expensive and can be utterly humiliating. What we need instead is an insurance system that honors contribution. That has to start with decentralization. We have to offer people the chance and more scope to top up their coverage with private insurance, but doing it in a mutual way where you pay into a system that uh, pools resources and risks. And we have to, at the same time, fund welfare institutions both regionally and locally so that they can actually be aware of needs and help people uh, in a much more place-based and people-based way. That is particularly true for social care but also other parts of the welfare system. Contributory welfare within a national insurance model means that what people take out depends in large part of what they have put in. But this doesn't just concern people who have paid jobs. Unpaid work at home, mostly performed by women, both historically and now, would of course be recognized as a vital contribution. So this isn't about whether people have jobs or not. This is about who makes a contribution. As I said, almost all make a contribution most or all of the time. So decentralization and contribution are the principles around which we can link more bottom-up community-based solutions for care, for training, to larger-scale models of delivery. We could bring together voluntary associations, social enterprises, under the guidance of local government or a city region, or indeed national government where appropriate. Because what happens now is that local councils seem to be either providing public services, but often don't have the resources to really pay for proper care, or outsource them to the cheapest for profit supplier. What we need instead is a more mutual arrangement, bringing together different providers and participants. So before I conclude, let me say a few words about how the idea of integral ecology 
is also part of Catholic social thought and its approach to the economy. In Laudato Si, our common home of nature, Pope Francis stresses again and again the importance of natural law and a divinely created cosmos. Not reducible to the human will, but instead requiring careful judgment and prudence. That means economically, they need to be very wary of claims about measureless acquisition, endless growth. Because after all, we do live in a finite world in which humankind all too often transgresses all manner of physical and moral boundaries at our own peril, but also at the peril of the natural world. What's missing from purely secular thought is any kind of sense of limit based on some form of individual and communal self-restraint. Some limits on our seemingly insatiable desires, but really they are not naturally given. Insatiable desires are often artificially produced, including by our economic system, which as the Anglican writer R.H. Tawney, more than 100 years ago, described as the acquisitive society. It is not something that's naturally given, it's something that we have artificially brought about. And that's where we need to start, with this end of limitless acquisition. And the fundamental issue here is the loss of meaning, that we've lost a sense of intrinsic worth and purpose for ourselves, but also for animals and the entire biosphere. And linked with this absence of limits is a new culture of what Pope Francis calls disposability, in which everyone and everything that doesn't satisfy our immediate desires can so readily be dispensed with precisely because it had already been turned into a commodity. And all commodities, of course, are ultimately worthless. They have no intrinsic value. So at some point, when they cease to satisfy desires or cease to have any utility, we just get rid of them. That now includes people who are written off as not being economically useful anymore. And is it a surprise that millions of people are now inactive because they've lost all hope of actually getting a job that gives them any kind of proper wage or any kind of meaning. So we've brought about these things, not because they are inevitable, but because we've created a system that commodifies everything and everyone. And hence, we find ourselves in a world in which too much power is centralized, a lot of wealth is concentrated, and everyday existence is increasingly commodified. So the tragic paradox we face is that the materialism that characterizes a lot of the modern ideologies is in fact deeply anti-material and destroys both us and nature. The natural world is of course anything but just some kind of physical monolith, some external reality against which we either have to protect ourselves or which we must exploit at will. On the contrary, nature is full of symbols and nature itself is profoundly relational. And to reflect that relationality, I think what Pope Francis in Laudato Si is trying to bring about is restored relationships with creation, the creation we belong to, and with the creator who made us to share in that bliss of communion. It is about the unbreakable links between contemplation, the Eucharist, justice and social transformation. In other words, it's a call for re-enchantment so that we have a flourishing of body, mind, and spirit all at once. That seems a long way away from where we are. But we can start with the politics of place, 
to recognize just how important the land is to people's affections for their locality and their attachment to their country. A politics of place is an integral part of our sense of belonging. And the economy needs to reflect that. Nature and the countryside are sources of beauty and well-being as well as economic resources. Now, instead of talking about some abstract green deal that just focuses on the aggregate, what we really require is an ecological politics that's embedded in local communities and speaks to people's country existence. Not some bourgeois environmentalism decided on uh, somewhere far from people, but an environmentalism attuned to both urban and rural communities, to food production and distribution, the wealth of animals, and the creation of more renewable energy supply. It's a very different sense of ecology than what we get from, I think, a lot of so-called green politics. So let me conclude with some very brief reflections on how to move from capitalism to a social market and indeed to a gift community. 30 years ago, this was written, and I quote, it is right to speak of a struggle against an economic system if the latter is understood as a method of upholding the absolute predominance of capital, the possession of the means of production and of the land, in contrast to the free and personal nature of human work. In the struggle against such a system, what is being proposed as an alternative is not the socialist system, which in fact turns out to be state capitalism, but rather a society of free work, of enterprise and of participation. Such a society is not directed against the market, but demands that the market be appropriately controlled by the forces of society and by the state, so as to guarantee that the basic needs of the whole of society are satisfied. End of quote. Yes, you've guessed right, John Paul II and Chintesimus Annas. In concrete terms, what I think Pope uh, John Paul's call means is trying to build the everyday economy shifting the emphasis from some abstract global economy or some central structures at the national level to those economic sectors that actually serve our needs, the production and the social goods that sustain our daily lives. So that means a greater focus again on agriculture and food, on retail, on hospitality, but also on some manual jobs that I think uh, a lot of us thought were going to go out of fashion. Construction, security, care, these are all sectors where actually we need more people, not fewer. Our needs are growing. And the key workers that were more prominent during COVID should not be forgotten. But this part of the economy is characterized by low wages, low productivity and low skills, which prevents stronger growth and more human flourishing. So national renewal has to start with those sectors and those workers. But building a foundational economy that determines the well-being of most people is also critical when it comes to things like a universal basic infrastructure, which is the real Christian response to calls for universal basic income, where such an income will be hugely regressive, incredibly expensive, and ultimately defeating the purpose of providing security and meaning. Universal basic infrastructure would ensure that all parts of the country ultimately have access to adequate housing, transport, education, health, and social care, built on work, family, and local community. That is what we should aim for, not universal basic income. Yet, we do find ourselves in a situation where our economy is still too much built on debt, speculation, and abstract money. 
And as we saw during the 2008 financial crash, it's a system that ends up privatizing profit, nationalizing losses, and socializing risk. It's a model that lacks virtue and provides incentives to vice. Cheating, greed, avarice, you name it. The cycle of boom and bust that Margaret Thatcher's Big Bang unleashed and Gordon Brown vowed to abolish but didn't embodies the destruction that our current economic system can bring about of industry, of work, of human lives, and of nature. We don't build enough anymore. Instead, we extract excess profits, often underpinned by speculation and debt, while we have a low-wage, high-wealth model. Income from work apparently needs to be supplemented and subsidized by the taxpayer so that working people can actually end up feeding themselves and their families. Totally unsustainable. The dominant economic model has severed money and finance from relations of production based on work and ingenuity. We've actually replaced creativity and reciprocity with an ugly monoculture of consumerism, and that is not ending well. The inherent competition between financial speculation and production is just as endemic to capitalism as the conflict between capital and labor. That is what we need to resolve. So to re-embed capital institutions, we need to create a whole host of institutions. I'll just name a few. Regional and sectoral banks constrained to lend within particular areas or sectors so that we can transform the centralizing power of capital, provide access for businesses outside of financial centers, and actually limit the higher rates of return that ended up destroying our mutual banking sector. We also need to undercut all the usurious lending that's still going on, as well as uh, that uh, which is fueling debt and gambling, which are sadly among the few growth sectors in the economy at present. Catholic social thought reminds us again and again that money need not be mammon. Money infused with the notion of reciprocal giving can be a source of wealth, of common resources and of generosity, should not be an instrument of debt and sacrifice to just one form of power. Many more institutions could be added to this, vocational, colleges, all sorts of chambers of commerce, you know, completely different trade unions and so on and so forth. But I must wrap up. So let me end with a paradox. The late cultural critic Mark Fisher in his 2009 book, Capitalist Realism, Contrast the seeming impossibility to imagine an alternative to capitalism, this idea that it's easier to imagine the end of the world than it is to imagine the end of capitalism, with the paradox that only senseless hope makes sense. I think the paradox of our time is that only the seemingly impossible vision of Catholic social thought may now be remotely realistic. Thank you very much. We now hear our speaker responding to questions after the lecture. The voice you'll hear first is one of our partners at Lincoln Cathedral who is hosting the event with me. We've included this Q&A because the questions and responses were so interesting. And now back to the episode. Adrian, if I may, I'm going to ask sort of two, two quick questions if I can, and uh, hopefully that will uh, get the ball rolling. So, you talked a lot about the at the beginning about that socio-economic regional inequality and and how do we break that vicious circle? Uh, and I just wonder, do we do do we need different solutions? Because we talk historically about a north-south divide, um, but but increasingly we see that rural-urban. So, is it different solutions to that sort of rural-urban social inequality? That's that was my 
that was my starter question. And then the, the other one really was about three-fifths of people um, work in the working population are employed by SMEs. And many of your solutions I can see being discussed around a board table of a corporate. But but how do we engage with owner-managed businesses to to really discuss things like social purpose and renegotiating with the workforce? So two very different questions, but um, if you're happy to take those, Adrian, that'd be great. Thank you, Mark, uh, for those excellent questions. And I think you're absolutely right. Uh, the models for regenerating urban and rural areas, I think, have to be very, very different. Mm-hmm. I think what we're seeing with levelling up is, first of all, thankfully, after, I think, 40 years of, of neglect by successive governments, now an emerging consensus that levelling up or, you know, whatever you want to call it, reducing regional inequalities, is a national mission and that it's going to be a generational task, whoever is in power. So at the very least, we got to the point where that is now firmly on the political agenda. Whether we currently have the resources and tools to really bring it about is, of course, a whole different question. And I think what we can see from the present government is an attempt to reduce inequalities through really two means. One is to focus on cities and city regions, mm-hmm. and the other one is to focus on clusters. And I think both clearly have an important role to play. There's no doubt that a lot of economic activity, a lot of creativity, innovation, uh, social purpose, social cohesion happens in cities or can happen in and around clusters or investment zones. But I think it's equally the case that we mustn't hope that somehow that will regenerate the whole country. Because what we do know from economics is that the spillovers from cities and from clusters are rather more limited than perhaps we thought or we hoped. So that, yes, London, the metropolitan parts of the southeast, Cambridge and Oxford and so on, are you know, areas of great prosperity and innovation. But to expect them to pull up the whole country, because somehow all that wealth will indeed spill over into other parts, is, I think, to labor under a big illusion. What we actually see is that as cities and clusters take off and grow, adjacent areas are falling behind both relatively and absolutely, so that there isn't even a slow lifting of all boats, but actually a greater degree of inequality within regions. And that's, I think, the great danger with just cities and clusters. Yes to cities and clusters for what they're able to do in their areas, but not because they are going to regenerate our suburban, rural and coastal communities. They will not. Okay? So look at a place like Southend, not far from London and yet falling ever further behind. And the same could be said about all sorts of areas close to metropolitan centres. You look around, you know, Leeds. Leeds and Bradford 50 years ago were on a similar trajectory. Now, it's almost two separate worlds. And that's not saying that all is well in Leeds. Of course it isn't. And you could say the same about Oldham in relation to Manchester and so on and so forth. So we need very different models. And I think those models will have to be about uh, a combination of specialisms, what can rural, coastal, suburban areas do that urban areas can't? Again, you would imagine that agriculture, fishery is part. Renewable energy in a place like Grimsby, you know, one of the biggest wind farms and one of the windiest places of Europe. And yet, does the local community really benefit from that? Not nearly enough. So how do we link specialisms, division of labor to communities? How do we create community land trusts so that people can actually be in charge of assets and try and grow businesses and so on. How do we create, create all sorts of social enterprise that don't just work for private profit, but share that with 
a community? How do we create the critical mass in these places? So people actually stay and, 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 and study and, and work there rather than leaving for the next best city. So I think we need very different models for different parts of the country. And I think currently that's, I think, missing from the leveling up data. Thanks, Aiden. On SDGs and social purpose, it's a it's a tough one. And I think there are lots of people around the table who know an awful lot more about this. But I think the key thing is to look again at the Companies Act and think whether we can't do better than what we've done in 2006, where social purpose comes pretty much at the bottom and clearly isn't on the minds of a lot of uh, uh, people. But for SMEs, I think above all, it means working out how you can not just survive, but grow your business. Because the tragedy in Britain is that we have lots of startups, some linked to universities and, you know, science or, or business parks, some just, you know, emerging because people have brilliant ideas. But often after a few years, they just get bought out. They don't grow into medium-sized businesses. So how do we get small businesses today to become medium-sized businesses tomorrow? We have a huge lack. We've got, got some very large businesses, some very small ones, very little in the middle. Too much gets sold out, you know, and, and, and snapped up by, by venture capital or private equity. Not a bad thing in and of itself, but we don't grow enough in national assets. So the question, I think, for us is how can we embed companies so that they become national assets and aren't just sold off to the next best foreign bidder. Okay. Great. So we've got quite a lot of good questions coming in. So we've okay. um, we asking me to be short, Jenny. It's okay. Yeah, and I think if we get through a few um, uh -huh. in the next 10 minutes or so. So there's one question saying that um, to model the model you're describing now, do you think it's got a better chance of happening now that we're seeing the process of deglobalization, of the breaking down of international supply chains? You mentioned, for example, food and energy. So what, would you like to say something about the kinds of models that you envisage that might deliver food and energy, uh, for example, community energy trusts and so on, that are aligned with, solid, with subsidiarity? So I think deglobalization is certainly a moment of opportunity because I think it focuses attention on, on resilience. You know, how do you make national, regional, local economies more resilient in the face of shocks? And this is particularly important for the United Kingdom because it's such an open economy, much more open than almost any other advanced economy. Whether it's the US or Japan or Germany or France, those advanced economies have got either more natural borders, the US effectively being almost a whole continent, Japan, an island. Right? Yes, the United Kingdom is an island, but it's become far, far more exposed because it's essentially uh, lacked building up productive capacity. So deglobalization, insofar as it doesn't just mean a protectionist race to the bottom, where somehow we're going to try and outcompete on who can be more protectionist and forget that trade is still an important part of productivity and growth and so on, but it's to balance a fairer trade, not just free trade, mm -hmm. with building up more food, more energy, more housing at home. And I think the models for that would be models that are more mutual or mutualist, where, yes, of course, individual rights, including property rights, need to be protected. But we can't elevate individual property or private profit into some sort of absolute that dictates everything else. What we need instead is to think of community land trusts, of 
food cooperatives and agricultural cooperatives more generally, of even, you know, regional and, and local energy boards, you know, utilities rather than state-controlled or purely private providers. I think that's part of the answer. So we've got other questions coming in from Carl. Um, Work is given a different monetary value in society. CST, Catholic Social Thought, says we should prioritise labour over the needs of capital. Must reform of the economic social order mean moving away from a social order based on meritocracy? So, first of all, I think it's very, very important to remember that CST is pro-work and pro-business. And there is no difference here. There is not a greater emphasis on work. Only insofar as in the context of Rerum Navarum, labor was not being valued enough at the time. But this isn't to say that somehow labor is more intrinsically valuable. No, businesses are just as important as, you know, creators of wealth, employment, and so on. The whole point is not to see them in a conflictual relationship, but to say actually they need they go together. You know, who creates most of the jobs is private businesses. So therefore, you know, businesses are in fact intrinsically pro-work and certainly should be. But no, it doesn't mean uh, privileging one over the other. It certainly does mean moving away from meritocracy in one respect, which is to reject the idea there's only one success model. That for an individual or society to be successful is for everyone to work in, in services and no longer in production or in care and so on. That's the part of meritocracy that doesn't work. One success model, you know, transferable skills, a, a, a well-paid job in the city of London. It's a great thing, but it's not an answer to everyone's talents and vocations. So yes to successful lawyers, bankers, and all the rest of it, but not as the only success model. We need to value care and lots of other things besides. Okay, so another question here's from Ian. Uh, an incoming government in 2024, say a centre-left party, will possibly have minimal room for manoeuvre politically and economically on welfare. However, given the themes you set out, what should they prioritise on welfare policy that would support the themes you set out? Well, the first thing I think for any government that comes uh, in uh, is not to accept uh, you know, any old orthodoxy that clearly has not worked well for uh, the economy or society. And part of that orthodoxy is this obsession with arbitrary fiscal targets. That someone means we've got absolutely no leeway to do anything at all. And to say, yes, of course, public finances, stable public finances are a vital part of growth and investment and productivity. But to say also that there is scope, to scope for very targeted interventions. Public investment doesn't always crowd out private investment. In fact, just the opposite. Often it crowds in private investment. R&D is a good example. If there wasn't publicly funded R&D, there are a lot of things that wouldn't happen because private businesses don't always have the long-term horizon. So you need to target public investment, the areas where private investment alone can't do it, for the two of them to work together to unlock all of that potential that this country clearly has, but that isn't being realized. So the first thing to do is to reject the fiscal straitjacket. Secondly, not to spend more on government consumption, but investment. Third, for that investment to privilege productive activities. Uh, and on welfare, I think specifically, it's generally to find ways of raising wages so that people don't depend on welfare benefits as extra compensation or subsidies. Yes to wealth as a safety net, but not to welfare as a permanent subsidy of low wages. That's the problem that we have and that needs to be tackled. And whether an incoming government of any color actually does so, 
well, it's a bit like the NHS, right? It's too much of a consensus to say it's there, we can't touch it. No, you know, don't treat these things as sacred cows. The NHS is, you know, a huge asset, but it's too centralized, you know, too managerial uh, and doesn't actually help the front line and isn't at the moment a health service so much as a disease service. Be much more prevention so that people don't even have to go to their GP or to hospital in the first place. So let's be more proactive in how we set up public institutions, not always treating a problem when it's already arisen. So switching to climate change now, Vanessa asks, in order to have any chance of keeping temperature rises below two degrees global heating, we need deep cuts in emissions around half by 2030. Without these cuts, we're risking running away tipping points and climate heating out of control. How do you see this being achieved within your CST model? So I think CST would always remind us that climate is not one uh, separate thing. It's totally integrated with everything else. That means uh, climate change policies have to reflect the problem. That is, yes, absolutely cutting emissions. I think uh, home insulation and some of those questions need to be tackled far more than we have done, including uh, alternative sources of energy for homes. So I think that's where the focus has to go to. But also to think about biodiversity. This isn't just about stopping emissions. So that's a huge part of it, I agree. What are we doing to preserve and over time enhance biodiversity again? Because biodiversity is also one way of dealing with carbon emissions. It's not the only way, but it's an important way. And at the moment, I think biodiversity is being neglected. That means different forms of agriculture, different forms of how we think about, you know, national parks and, and, and everything else. But let's not reduce any one problem, and certainly not climate change, to just one set of actions. It needs to be more holistic than that. But yes, to emission cutting, of course. I think home insulation is the key thing. Okay. Um, a couple of other quick, shorter questions, I think. Um, Dorothy asks, would the creation of more mayors who are part of a local area be a step forward? I think so, because at the moment we have a very selective form of devolution where Treasury decides uh, which areas get more powers. And I don't think that Treasury should have an absolute veto over who gets decision-making powers or resources. I think uh, areas uh, with mayors, I think over time, will do better because even if it doesn't work out in the first term, I think it will bet in. And I think there will be great accountability to the local citizens, not just accountability to the centre. Um, so I think we need more elected mayors. But again, that's not a panacea. That other things need to happen. Transfer of power and resources, independent of Treasury. And crucially, I think, more involvement of local citizens, whether that's through elections or through other ways. But what we can't have is a politics of devolution decided entirely in and by Whitehall. That seems to me to be a total contradiction. Okay. Um, question about collective bargaining. Collective bargaining as a nation is now coming from a position of weakness. Should there be a national drive towards realistic self-sufficiency of resources and industry? Well, I think it's very hard to achieve self-sufficiency in any, I think, uh, sector of the economy. Uh, and so I think to aim for that, I think, might be uh, too extreme. I think trade is still a really, really important, valuable thing, as long as it's fair, as long as it includes uh, the different stakeholders, and as long as it pays attention to ethical and, and ecological limits. Mm -hmm. So, you know, more fair trade, not as a consumer label, but as an actual form of doing trade deals, um, rather than just free trade or, or protectionism. But I think what we need is not so much self-sufficiency as greater resilience means 
you know, more autonomy. I think autarky is uh, in, an, in a world and in an open economy like the UK's, not something we should pursue. So there's a question here from Jeff saying, in an increasingly secular society, is an economy built on Catholic social, social teaching really achievable? If so, how do we achieve this? And he's also asking, are there movements working to achieve this? And I'd just like to add, add to that. Why is it that people continually think this model is idealistic? And is it because we're so deeped in this dominant economic model, we think we can't think any other way? Um, and also perhaps you could address this sometimes misunderstanding about Catholic social teaching that it's intending to impose a theocracy. Uh, my understanding is it's a framework for good judgment, but I'd love to hear your thoughts. And could you address the, the movements, you know, which, I mean, you can't name names necessarily, but it's not necessarily the front benches, let's say, of both parties who are behind this, but there are politicians, aren't there, who are beginning to think like this, and there is an emerging consensus, if you could say something about that. How long have we got? <laughs> okay. Um, okay, fine. Um, so, so, yes, this whole idea, there is no alternative, right, is a deeply secular idea that is very deterministic. That means we have no choices, there's no human agency, uh, things are just the way they are, you know, they're either determined historically or technologically or economically or in whatever way, but that is, I think, manifestly wrong. Uh, the question is, despite path dependency and all the things we inherit and things that we can't change immediately, what scope is there? And I think Catholic social thought opens up a whole range of options that you know, are currently hidden by purely secular ways of thinking. So if people are worried about a theocracy, let's ask the question of where's the intolerance? Where's the exclusion? And actually, if we are addressing people of goodwill, as Catholic social thought does in every single social encyclical, that is exactly the audience. We're talking about people who are prepared to change their ways of thinking and acting. So this is not a theocracy. This is essentially saying uh, notions of common good and subsidiarity and solidarity are universal. People of faith uh, and no faith are completely included in this. What we need is people of goodwill who will act together to make it happen. So it's, it's definitely not an imposition. It's an invitation and a strong encouragement to do things differently that actually works with the grain of humanity, not against it. That's why it's universal rather than any particular confessional imposition. Yes, there are individual politicians who are, I think, argued in this way, not nearly enough, but I think people can be encouraged and persuaded. And then there's a whole host of organizations either working behind the scenes or already in their own field that are doing such important work together for the common good, CCLA, Lincoln, are just one example of how you can create partnerships and, you know, change discussions that I think we couldn't have had 20, 30, 40 years ago. So here's an example. Uh, there are many, many more. Uh, thank God there are. But it's true, the politics and some of the economics are going to have to not just take notice, but hopefully embrace it. And that's, I think, is one of the questions, how to bring that about. That was a wonderful lecture from Adrian Pabst. If you enjoyed it as much as I did, please consider rating this episode in your podcast app. This will really help other people to find it. And please do share it with friends who you think would enjoy it as well. I'd like to thank Adrian for talking about what a just economy looks like. Really helpful to bring theory down to earth and hear such a clear and constructive vision of what a just economy could be like. I hope you enjoy listening to the other lectures in the series too. My name is Jenny Sinclair, founder and director of Together for the Common Good. 
I'd love it if you would explore our other work too, including our sister podcast, Leaving Egypt, with my good friend Alan Roxburgh, where we explore what it means to be God's people in times of unraveling. You can find it where you're listening to this podcast right now, or you can join our community at leavingegyptpodcast.substack.com. You can find our other work at togetherforthecommongood.co.uk. Thank you for listening. God bless and goodbye for now.